Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So on Monday, our podcast was the episode part of our live show from New York Super Week. Holly and I talked to Brian Young, who's the author of a children's illustrated history of presidential assassination about, as you might expect, presidential assassinations and also his book. And we had planned all along to make that live podcast recording part of the show into an episode of the podcast so that all of you could hear it. But we were generally expecting that the Q&A part of the show that we did after we finished our sort of planned out discussion to be this weird hodgepodge of questions that would skip around and really wouldn't be like one cohesive thing. Because, you know, that's often how Q&A sessions go. Right. That's, ask whatever's on their mind. That's, it usually uh, does skip around. However, we had the world's best audience. We seriously like, did. We really did. They asked great questions. They were interesting and insightful and concise, and most of them were about the assassinations and the attempts that we had just been discussing. So it became clear... I mean, I think we were literally leaving the venue and walking back to our hotel when both of us, independently of each other, were like, we need that Q&A part to be a podcast also. Yeah, because Brian is so uh, well-researched in this area. He knows so much and he's so passionate about history that his answers on these amazing questions that people came up with were just so thoughtful and interesting and informative that, like, there was no way we wanted to keep that to ourselves. No, we we are keeping some bits to ourselves and to the audience who was there. With us. <laughs> yeah, not so much that's just about the presidential assassination. Yeah. Uh, and as a note, uh, because we did not have an audience mic, uh, we repeated the questions so that everyone could hear. So this really helped uh, since the audience questions weren't really captured in the recording. So what we've done, just to try to spare you of odd, fuzzy, quiet spaces, we, we've tried to snip out or shorten the pauses and the times when they were maybe asking questions that just weren't audible. Yeah. And the last thing is, because this Q&A really followed on the heels of the live podcast we had just recorded, some of the questions definitely reflect back to that part of the show. So if you haven't heard Monday's episode, it's a good idea to check that one out before you listen to this one. So let's hop right in. We're first going to begin with a question for Brian about how he dealt with Squeaky Frome and the Manson family in the book. So how did I deal with Squeaky Fromm in the book? Um, so the Gerald Ford chapter, uh, it's it's interesting where I didn't get into the whole, like, yes, she was a follower of Manson, and it was sort of like that was a little crazy. Like, I didn't get into that much detail, and it was one of those things, again, where, like, I didn't want to be the person presenting that rabbit hole of information to kids. Um, I wanted parents to, to kind of do that. I mean, I really do think this book is a partnership between kids and parents. Um, and I think most books like this should be. I mean, I don't think there's a book like this, but you get what I mean. And it's important that Gerald Ford was there and what the circumstances were and that I, I kind of classify her under the delusional category. And by the time all of the, the, all of the stories are assembled chronologically. So by the time they get to Gerald Ford, they kind of are attuned to the fact that some of these people are just delusional. And so when it's like she found this guy that, that kind of twisted the ideas in her head. Like, I don't think that that's a bridge too far for them to cross. And so that's, that's kind of how I handled it. And there's, 
there are some illustrations in that portion of the book. And the interesting part of the story is that, like, she had a loaded weapon and she was able to fire it and, like, it it magically didn't go off because she didn't have the bullet chambered and they were able to tackle her in time. And it's more incredible that, like, it happened in California and Ford just stayed in California and, like, two weeks plus later, like, um, uh, there was another assassination attempt and it was just, like, a woman who was like, I'm upset about my politics, and she took a shot at him. And, like, if I were Ford, I'd never go back to California. <laughs> um, I tried to figure out what exactly her politics were after I read the book, and I could not I, find an answer to that anywhere. I, that, that was sort of, like, the, the vague answer that was given, like, every time. And I, my best guess was the pardon of Nixon. Um, because a lot of people, that was sort of what people were upset at that time. Mm-hmm. About, um, but I couldn't find anything conclusive that she talked about it, mm-hmm. and so I didn't want to include it. And I tried to keep the book fairly nonpartisan; like it was, it was very. I tried to remain sort of balanced in, in so far as like, yes, the Trail of Tears was was awful, but it happened, and and this was what Jackson did because he thought it was right. I don't think any of the presidents that I talk about in the book thought they were like purposely harming America or destroying anything. So I tried to approach it that way. Well, and that's, that's the more, and just from a, a writing standpoint, that's the more interesting way to approach it anyway. Cause like mustache twirling villains are pretty boring. Yeah. Nobody thinks they're the bad guy. No. And, and that's what's, it was the same thing with handling all of the assassins too. Um, you know, there were a couple of like anarchists or, or man, even the guy who tried to kill Garfield or who did kill Garfield. Like he wasn't just like a good guy. He was the guy who made Garfield like the president because he wrote that speech that everyone listened to that he happened to retitle after the election (laughs) to make it relevant to Garfield. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's like, no one, no one in this book thought they were the bad guy, not the assassins, not the presidents. And so I didn't want to approach anybody like that. I wanted to try to get at what people's reasons were, honestly. I mean, even John Wilkes Booth, like I said, I mean, I don't think he tried to kill. I, I don't think there's any good reason to kill a president. But for Booth, he thought he was doing what was best for his country. And I didn't want to, to, I, I wanted to humanize him so that people can see that people can make really bad decisions for what they think are the right reasons. Yeah. This is like a big moral load for children. I love it. (laughs) It stems from my love of Star Wars and the whole Anakin Star Skywalker thing. I promise we wouldn't go down that path. I promise. It's relevant. I I understand. (laughs) It's always relevant to me, but um, other questions? What do we got? No. So, so, so did your daughter have interactions with the editor and the editor, did the editor have to edit your daughter? No, no. All, all my daughter did were the, like, I, I kind of handled her and it was all just her, her only contributions were, uh, she did a, a portrait of each president and for three of the assassination, the successful assassinations, she did renderings of them. She found nothing interesting about Garfield's assassination. So she was just like, <laughs> I don't care about Garfield. Which is kind of why that's probably, I think, for most people, like, on average, like, the hardest one to name. Um, especially since Garfield, I don't, with, with McKinley, um, people have his name around. With Garfield, like, 
I don't think people associate him with very much. Um, and, and so I think he was just sort of the most forgettable and I have no idea. Like I can't get an answer out of her why she didn't want to do that one other than it was just like, I don't know. So, but no, there was no interaction with, with the publisher, the editor and her. It was that they kind of let me take care of all of that. Who else? I know we had a, a hand over here. Yep. Um, so Brian's take on the Steven Sondheim play Assassin's Creed. I have not seen it. I know, right? So, so much gasping. Uh, that's yeah. the reaction that I get every time I hear that. I have listened to the score a lot. Um, because I, my, I, I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say my wife is just really into like Stephen Sondheim and musicals. So I've heard the score and stuff, but it wasn't like anything I sought out. It wasn't like, I wonder if this is going to reveal anything that I'm going to have to put in the book. It was, it was, it, it, what, it didn't feel like necessary. Um, it, it didn't feel like necessary research for me. Same with Sarah Vowell's wonderful assassination vacation. Like I just didn't go there for this. Uh, I was just going to say that I, we still get emails sometimes about the time that I said that I don't care for Sondheim on the podcast. And that was like yeah. two years ago, I think. <laughs> I don't really either. I'm so sorry. I can appreciate Sondheim's technical mastery. I do not personally yeah. enjoy listening to it as a thing to do for fun. Well, and I have that, I have that musicals thing where I don't like to hear, watch people sing. Because you see in their mouths, it's really gross. I can't handle it. It is so gross. That's also why you never watch Glee. That is like a torture chamber to me. Like if I ever, if I'm ever suspected of a crime and people want to like torture the truth out of me, they can just show me American Idol and Glee over and over. And I'll be like, I'll give it up. I'll give it up. Don't make me look at their mouth anymore. I think we had this exact conversation one time on that podcast we used to be on. I think so. It's icky. I can't do it. it and also okay. they make faces that are pr- private time faces. Those aren't, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like they make really emotive singers. I can watch opera cause they're acting a little bit more and it's not quite as, but I, mm, mm, mm. no, thank you. Another question. Uh, you, sir. <laughs> so. Uh, he wants to know if I had to explain to her the plot of Taxi Driver. Um, Taxi Driver comes up, but I did not get into the plot of Taxi Driver. I would have liked to because I really love Taxi Driver. And I really love Scorsese movies. And what was germane to the story was that that movie influenced him and that there was assassination in, and a, a, a potential assassination in the movie and that Jodie Foster was in it. And those were the three key details that I put in the book because, I mean, you're hard-pressed to find anybody of a generation younger than mine, I feel like, that's interested in movies made before 1985 anyway. And so Taxi Driver, like, to an eight-year-old just seems like, I, I don't know, what's the point, really? Like, they're going to need to be way older for all of the context anyway, so they just need to know the highlights. And, there, I mean, there is an illustration, Aaron uh, Kubinek, who did – the illustrations did, um, she did portraits of each, each of the assassins. And I, I think, um, his portrait is one of my favorites because it does have Jodie Foster from Taxi Driver in it. And it's just a really interesting, uh, you, you'll have to, to look at it. It's just a great portrait. I feel like we stumbled into your next children's book, which is the illustrated Scorsese for children. <laughs> he did that himself with Hugo. <laughs> 
if you are a little foggy about the more recent presidential assassination attempts in history, you may not recall why Taxi Driver is relevant to all this. So long story short, John Hinckley Jr.'s attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan in 1981 was in part an imitation of that movie and an attempt to impress Jodie Foster, who had a leading role in it. And now we're going to take a quick break because we talk about the answer to the next question for quite a bit. It goes on for a while and it's really informative. So before we get into that, let's pause for a brief word from one of our great sponsors. Next up, we have a question about how these assassinations and their attempts have affected the nation. And answering this took us all down a bunch of different roads from the sort of galvanizing effects that an assassination attempt tends to have on the general public to the evolution of the Secret Service, which we don't really talk about it here, but there is a whole section of the book that's about exactly that. So let's jump in. So he wants to know the, the effect of assassination and what it's had on, on the country. Is that, is that, um, I think for my daughter, I think the effect was immediate when I told her that first time, like President Lincoln was assassinated and she was gobsmacked that that was, that's a word I can use, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. She was gobsmacked. Um, that, that was something that could even happen because it's just not, it's not, it, it didn't feel pleasant to her that somebody would do that. Um, and going through the book, I think it's important. I, I think, and maybe this is me being too much of a, an artist or something and wanting people to get something out of it themselves, but there's like nothing pleasant that happens with any of this. The country's in turmoil and there's sort of that picture painted that like no one likes any of this happening and that the people who are doing it for the most part are just disturbed individuals and they probably needed help. And this is not okay. And that no rational human being is going to say, this is a logical choice for me to make. And just that devastation on her face when she found out it was a possibility, I think is, is the reaction it has on like a mass scale for everybody. Um, but I'd be more interested to hear you guys think of, I mean, you guys read it pretty objectively and, and. Well, know. what I initially think of when that question comes up is actually, um, I am old enough to remember when Reagan was shot. Oh, me too. Bar- uh, barely, but yeah. I was nine when it happened and I remember like that being really a shockwave moment. Like I remember walking in the door, I can tell you about the little peach tiered skirt outfit I was wearing and my older brother, who is a good bit older than me, like he greeted me at the door off the school bus and said, the president was shot. And I think I said some swear words like you're full of, you know, um, cause that's the kind of nine year old I was. I'm sorry. It's true. Uh, and he was like, no, it's true. It's on TV. And we were watching it. And I just remember it being an oddly, again, through the lens of a nine year old, it seemed like a very galvanizing moment where everyone was very upset about it. And it didn't matter about your politics. It was just horrible well, that this had taken place. Um, there's a moment in the book. Um, and it, it happened when Reagan was being brought to the hospital, um, which is another interesting thing where Reagan was almost like, no, I'm fine. It's a cracked rib. Oh, no, I'm coughing up blood. And then they were like, okay, let's take him to the hospital. And Reagan was sort of joking about it. And and I think this is part of why I thought it was really important to humanize the president, whoever he was, whichever party and whatever I felt their politics were. Um, Reagan gets into the operating room and says, I hope you're all Republicans. <laughs> and the surgeon was a pretty prominent liberal Democrat, and he said 
sir, today we're all Republicans. And I think that was a really powerful moment. I really wanted to include moments like that in the book where I could, because I think that's what happens when, when our leaders are attacked like that. Um, there was another one with, uh, um, well, that's, that's actually kind of a lighter story, but, um, there are examples of that where it's like, we have to come together and like overcome this because that's not, this is not how people act or should act. And that we all like, despite our political differences come together because human life is valuable regardless of what the opinion of that human life is. You can also see as you read all these stories in the book, the progression in how much, uh, safety insurance surrounds the yeah. office of president. Like when you, when you think about ages ago in the past, Kings riding into battle with their men, right. And putting their own lives at risk on a field of battle. Then we sort of get to the earliest assassination attempt in the United States with, uh, with somebody basically being like, Oh, uh, that guy just tried to kill the president. We're standing around here. We should probably knock him down. <laughs> Davy Crockett to the rescue. Davy, Co- Davy. Davy Crockett knocks him down. Uh, and it's, so you sort of see gradually that, okay, now there are some guards posted outside where the president is sleeping. Now we have an actual secret service. Like now this sort of grows into this whole thing. And now we have like dudes running alongside the armored car. There, there, there are moments like that in the book too, where, where there are steps sort of taken along the way. Uh, we talk about when the secret service kind of came around. Um, the book goes into, I think, uh, Garfield's assassination was actually a big step in fixing a lot of this stuff. Um, back when Garfield was president, when the parties changed hands, uh, with the White House, like everyone in Washington got fired. Like everyone lost their job. It, it didn't matter if you were a department level position or like the guy working at the post office in DC, like everyone lost their job and everyone from the new party came in and they just started seeking work um, to fill all those positions again. And it was very partisan and anybody could, I mean, like uh, you could like go get that appointment at the white house. Like today you go to the white house uh, and it's, it's kind of a big process. You've got to get tickets from your congressperson and they've got to go through a background check before you can even get to the security checkpoint to get into the house. And, and then you can ask for a job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's not going to work because the only person there is a stone-faced security officer going like please leave now. Um but so so Garfield he was assassinated by a guy who kept showing up and saying like um I should be the consul of Paris. Um I was joking about it earlier but he had written a speech um that f- before from about some other people and after Garfield won literally changed the names in the speech to match Garfield and said like this speech was the thing that changed the country's mind to make you win this election. I should have a position in this administration. And he kept coming back over and over and over again. And he kept saying like, I totally deserve this job of consul of Paris. And they're like, you're, you're a crazy person. Please leave. (laughs) Like, and they were really polite about it, but then he borrowed $15 and bought a gun with that and started stalking Garfield. And, um, I found it really interesting that the first time he was going to shoot Garfield, he didn't go through with it because Garfield's wife was there and he didn't want to cause that distress of her having to see it personally. So he waited till later 
and then shot and killed him. Um, I mean, it took a few days, but, um, and then Chester A. Arthur, who took over, like his big signature flagship thing, the thing we know Chester A. Arthur for, if anything, other than a reference in Die Hard 3, is that a civil service reform, they made it so that you, your job was based on competency, not this political partisan office seeking, because that was what they blamed the assassination attempt on. And so, um, the book, as it progresses chronologically, you see every step the country sort of takes to get away from the fact that it would be almost unthinkable today for anyone to get close enough for that to happen in in that situation. I have no idea if that's answered your question. We've kind of gone down a very long road here. We have time for still more questions. Yeah. I think the hardest to research was the Kennedy one because I, like, read the Warren report. And I don't know if you've seen the Warren report, but it's, like, that thick. Um <laughs> And that, that was just me like, man, that's a lot of work. Um, it wasn't harrowing in the least. It was just a lot of time. One of the ones that was, that was a lot of hard was like, there's no, there's no photo reference of Richard Lawrence, who was the first presidential assassination. So like 90% of the illustrations in the book are based on photographs and things, but Aaron had to take sort of artistic license to render Richard Lawrence. Um, I found the Kennedy assassination like really um it was really difficult just emotionally. Um Scout really, really, really wanted to watch the Zapruder film. And I didn't know how comfortable I was with that. And uh, you know, she kinda talked me into it. Like, you know, if we're gonna do this, I'd like to watch it. And we watched the one that was like they've like digitally gotten rid of all of the I mean, if you watch the original Zapruder film, it's just all over the place and you can't really track what's going on. Like, you know what's going on. If you freeze frame it, you can tell. But they, like, digitally fixed all of it and straightened it all out. And it was, uh, I think that was probably the most difficult moment, like, making the decision to say, like, we're going to watch this and and we're going to go through with, like, understanding why this happened. Um, I think that was probably one of the most striking moments making the whole book. What else you got? The question is, do, do I get letters from, from children after reading the book? And I have, and, and, uh, the letters I'm more, uh, that kind of reveal more are actually from teachers. Um, there uh, are, I, I get letters a lot from teachers who actually use the book to teach. And I hear sort of through them that kids get, have gotten really interested in it because they're, they're connecting with the stories and actually kind of biting off pieces of history that, that they wouldn't, ordinarily be able to at, at sort of that eight to 12 age. Um, and, and so that's sort of what's most gratifying um, to me. It, it, the question was, did I consult with any developmental psychologists or teachers? I did have um, the editor had a, he, he runs a social studies department at a school district and, and he's one of the ones who like uses the book. He really loves it. I don't believe a developmental psychologist was involved in any way. And, uh, and maybe that was a mistake on someone's part, but I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, like, start I, getting letters from scarred children. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is like when I, I, I think about going back to when I was like eight and ten and twelve, and there are things that my parents and 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 everyone in my generation, like, we got away with with watching or seeing. Like when I was like seven and eight, like nobody batted an eyelash at me throwing RoboCop on. You know, and, and Robocop's not, not my not, house. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Robocop is something like I wouldn't show my kids right now. And my kids now, I mean, Scout, um, when we started, Scout was eight. She's 12 now. And I still wouldn't be like, Hey, Scout, let's watch Robocop. Like it wouldn't happen. Like I think kids, um, are more resilient than we give them credit for just personally, because I was more resilient because I was exposed to like all kinds of horrible things in movies like Robocop. Um, I don't know why I'm focusing on Robocop. <laughs> because it's extremely, it's like a weird Peter Weller situation brewing. Yeah. My mother on the other hand had huge problems with violence. So there was no Robocop in my world until I was a grown up, and I was oh. shocked at how much just shooting people repeatedly in the chest. there is. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Like Ed 209 is, is pretty striking to a kid. Oh, um, no, I was deep into violence. I mean, I love violence. I love violence to this day, I, which is funny because I myself am like the least violent person ever. So whatever studies correlate those two things, I'm clearly outside of. But uh, but as an entertainment tool, I think it's. Um, but but I think it, it was important to me and I think important to some of the the, the, the social studies department director that that I kind of went through the book with that. I think it's important not to sugarcoat stuff for kids, especially stuff that actually happened. Um, and sometimes you might want to delay it to figure out how you're going to have the conversation. Like I really, really wish um, I was driving my kids to school the day the news about Sandy Hook happened and we were like listening on NPR and it was like not okay for the kids. And I was like, I wish I would have had like a buffer of time to figure out how we would talk about it instead of like all of us just bawling in the car. Um, so, so this was me able to figure that out. And I think the, the social studies teacher that I work with, um, he sort of agreed. Um, and maybe that was just a confirmation bias. I was just like looking for somebody that would sign off and be like, yeah, thumbs up, educator approved. <laughs> but, um, but I, I, I think I was on the right track and the teachers I've heard from have agreed with me, but I, I haven't received any like really bad hate mail yet from somebody going like, I can't believe you, you know, the only hate mail I have got is people who haven't read the book that see the title and say, how dare you, like, try to, to bring this to children. And it's like, don't give it to them if you don't feel like your kid is able to handle it. And I think that's very important. Like, my kids are really um, weird kids that are sort of, like, cultivated with my sense of, like, academia and culture and things like that. Um, so, like... Scout is also super into like Charlie Chaplin films, which is something that none of her friends can relate to whatsoever. <laughs> and she's also super into like the three stooges. And it's like, she's 12. Like, why would she know about the three stooges? So like my kids are like a special case. And I wrote this for kids like my kids and there's tons of them out there. Um, but it really does come to, come down to, I think like, can that kid particular kid handle it? Now, I don't know everybody's kids. Um, but you know your kids. So. If you think your kid can handle it or would be interested by it or, um, you know, I, I one of the things I do hear from kids is that like they just or from parents really like kids don't email me really. Um, I hear like secondhand reports from parents and the parents are just like they just love it. They want to keep putting it together um, and keep reading it because the stories are just fascinating. And the fact that they're using it as that gateway to history, I don't see how that can be a bad thing. So before we get back into it, uh, this is the one question that we forgot to repeat for the audience. So the question that Brian is about to answer is how the gender ratio breaks down in terms of who was attempting to assassinate presidents. I think 
there were only two that tried to kill a president, and it was both Gerald Ford. Yeah. Um, Yikes. <laughs> so I don't know what was in, like, the water in the 70s or something, but, like... Um, really? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but it was only those two, um, and I, I have no idea why. I don't know, maybe, maybe men are deserve the the crazy reputation way more because it bears that out at least on the presidential assassination level. Yeah, it's that's overwhelmingly men. Yeah. No, I th- I honestly think I going back and thinking about it, it's just those two and it was within like 2 weeks with like Gerald Ford in California. <laughs> in California. So it's a pretty specific uh like, data set. Women in California did not like Gerald Ford. <laughs> For reasons that were kind of delusional. Yeah. 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 So I, yeah, that's the right. I hope that answers your question. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm going to let Holly take this one. We need to have another live show and have Sawbones on with us. So the question, the question, Holly, was what's a nutritive enema? So <laughs> here's the thing. Here's how I did, found out about them was when I, you guys may have seen this. It was a couple years ago. Was it a couple years ago? There was like a, a series of news reports going around about college students doing alcohol enemas because they could absorb it faster. It bypasses your liver like you're off like a rocket instantly. And someone, I think we were talking about it in a brainstorm at work. Mm-hmm. And someone said something like, well, you can do that with food, too. And I was like, what? <laughs> And then it came up in your book. So basically, it's the same thing. You're basically doing like a sluice of blended foodstuffs, and your colon absorbs the nutrients very quickly so that you're getting nutrition when you can't actually eat and digest. Was that clean enough and not too gross? I don't think it. It was very scientific on my part. Uh, people also used to do this with tobacco. There were smoke yeah. animals. I learned that from Sawbones. That if was you don't sometimes the Sawbones. Just pick that up. Yeah, it's it was free. sometimes a medicinal treatment. People like to, you know, <laughs> put <laughs> things in their butts. Just <laughs> <laughs> the coffee enemas. Yeah. In one of our upcoming Halloween episodes, we talk about a lady that was giving people lots of enemas that took hours. And that was not my research. That's all hers. <laughs> the enemas gross part. I'm really glad you two could talk about that. Yeah. All right, nutritive enemas. <laughs> I can't believe that fell to me to explain. It did. <laughs> but it seems it also seems like kind of a, a weird high note to, to take out the podcast on. <laughs> it was also the last of the questions that we had about presidential assassinations, and from here it did diverge into more general things about the podcast and various other topics. Uh, Also, I wanted to note that the podcast we talk about in this answer is the one about Linda Hazard and Starvation Heights, which since we are time traveling a little bit with this, uh, with this live show podcast, that one's out already. If you heard that and went multi-hour enemas, I want to listen to that episode. (laughs) So we have so many people to thank. Uh, New York Comic Con, New York Super Week, Matt, who coordinated so many things for us and his entire team was just spectacular. We also want to thank the folks at the Domena Center for classical music. That worked out to be a great venue for us. It was absolutely beautiful. And then we have to thank your amazing and wondrous fiance. 
Yeah, so we got to thank Patrick. I didn't thank Patrick at the time because I kind of, I did not want 200 people to turn and look at him. <laughs> because it seems a little embarrassing sometimes to be put on the spot. Uh, we basically got to the venue and we're like, we don't know what we want to do with the chairs. And he stepped in and essentially stage managed the whole show for us. Yeah, he was great. Uh, my beloved took some fun pictures and video for us. And in fact, Brian Young ended up thankfully recording it for us because we had a little confusion about how we were going to record the show. The Bryans yes. and the Patrick like saved our bacon. So <laughs> thank you to all of them. But most importantly, our audience was amazing. They were fantastic. Thank you so much, everyone who came out. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate it and how much we loved getting to see you and getting to meet you and just kind of have that wonderful evening together. It was absolutely spectacular fun for both of us. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And yes, we do hope to do it again. Yes, I would do that all the time if I had the opportunity. Every time we were promoting it, and the, usually the first comment anytime we promoted it would be, come to, and then the place where that commenter lived. And you and I kept being like, just let us get through this one first. <laughs> and then, I mean, it went so much better than we had any right to hope that it would. So yes, we hope to do it again. Yes. Maybe somewhere near you. I also have some listener mail. Uh, so my listener mail is from Jenna. It is about our redlining episodes, which were not the happier episodes we've ever done. But this listener mail is actually pretty positive. So I wanted to make sure to read it. And so Jenna says, hello, Holly and Tracy. I have been enjoying the podcast for about a year and a half now, thanks to my now husband introducing it to me on our first road trip together. I live in Fargo, but have family and friends in Chicago, so we're on the road fairly often. I'll even stop listening to new episodes for a few weeks before a trip, so we have enough new material to keep us company while we travel back and forth. I was really excited to have a tidbit of knowledge about how in one Chicago neighborhood, redlining was very strongly defeated by a group of mostly white residents. The Chicago NPR station did a story on their Curious City show about how in the Beverly neighborhood, down on the far south side, their mostly white residents worked hard to ensure that integration would happen in their neighborhood. And she gives the link to that episode, which we will put in our show notes. Currently, I serve as a pastor, and it was during my time in seminary that I had a teaching field ed site, and it was in Beverly. My denomination is largely white, and even in Chicago, the churches are often homogenous. While my teaching church was was still mostly white, it was more diverse than I had thought it would be, and I am extremely grateful to those who work to integrate the Beverly neighborhood. Thank you for your no-nonsense approach to issues of race, the inequality of those who identify within the LGBTQIA plus community, and the many wonderful women in history. It gives me so much hope and joy to hear your unapologetic take on listener feedback that all too often comes from a place of misogyny, racism, homophobia or xenophobia, etc. And then she she adds a little note, a little asterisk from when she mentioned being from Fargo, saying that almost everyone upon, upon hearing this first asks about the movie or TV show, neither of which actually takes place in Fargo, even though the state welcome center with the wood chipper is down the street from their home. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jenna, for writing in with us. We have had a couple of emails about Chicago specifically and steps that the city of Chicago took to try to prevent white flight into the suburbs and to try to keep its neighborhoods more integrated and some comparisons to Chicago and other cities in the Midwest and and how they have fared since then and whether that uh, some of that credit lies with the fact that the city is more integrated than some other places. So thank you so much, Jenna. I will put a note to that story in our show notes. 
If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. You can put residential assassinations in the search bar and you will find various things about various attempts through history. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find an archive of every episode we have ever done and show notes for all of the episodes Holly and I have worked on. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 